You're listening to Podmo, the number one network that brings you the best story-driven content out there. Hey, Spotlighters. You already know we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. And I know you're just as big a fan of free as I am. One of the reasons why advertisers love Tech Spotlight is that they know the show has amazing listeners. You guys. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com spotlight. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to take ours and help support the show. Don't forget, five minutes for a chance to win that $100 gift card. Sounds like a fair trade to me. Once again, that's podsurvey.com spotlight. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. Welcome to the Tech Spotlight. I'll be interviewing the co-founder of PayPal, the managing partner in the Founders Fund, and the first outside investor in Facebook. Peter Thiel is one of Silicon Valley's leading investors and thinkers. In your new book, Zero to One, you talk about the difference between horizontal and vertical processes. Explain this. Uh, well, the, I, think, I think in the 21st century, we're going to have two basic modes of progress. One is uh, globalization, which is basically about copying things that work. And the other one involves technology or inventing new things. And uh, that's, that's what Zero to One is about. It's everything I know about how we, uh, how we, build, about, how we build the great new companies that will, uh, will take our civilization to the next level in the, in the century ahead. In Zero to One, you discuss China as an exemplar in the horizontal process. Yet you say most people think the future of the world will be defined by globalization. But the truth is that technology matters more. Well, uh... China's plan for the next 20 years is very straightforward. It is just to copy everything that works in the West. Uh, it's uh, not that they can't invent new things. Uh, it's, I, I think they, they might be able to. I don't think there's anything about Chinese culture that's intrinsically uh, makes it impossible for people to invent new things, but they don't really have to because it's still very poor and they can, they can get a lot from just copying things that work. But for the uh, so-called developed nations, uh, U.S., Western Europe, Japan, uh, we actually do have to invent new things. And, and that's, why, that's why for us, technology matters a lot more than globalization. We have to invent new things. From the end of World War II to the 1970s, Western Europeans and Americans worked about the same amount of hours per week, and at that point in the 70s, once the Western Europeans had rebuilt, they diverge. Americans start working harder, and Western Europeans work less. Can a country sustain itself on no technological advancements? It's not clear how well it's working, and I agree there are differences between uh, U.S. and Western Europe, but I, th I would argue that, uh, that the entire developed world has entered an era of relative stagnation for, for quite some time. We've seen progress in computers, internet, mobile internet, uh, per capita incomes have still gone up some in the U.S. in the last 40 years, but there is, there is sort of this sense of malaise. Um, it's much worse in Western Europe, but people think the, the younger generation will uh, not do as well as their parents. Uh, people think that, uh, you know, um, and, then, and then it's very unclear how you grow an economy. Um, and our political systems, I would argue, depend on economic growth. You can, you can have, I think you can have static civilizations and like medieval societies. Or I don't know if you can have it in a representative democracy where the give and take of our, um, 
of our, uh, of our, of our Republican form of government uh, depends the pie to grow. There's more for you, there's more for you, there's more for you. We craft compromises that are win, win, win. Uh, once the pie stops growing, our system gets very polarized, and I don't think it actually works that well un unless you have growth. We'll return to that. At one level, Zero to One reps a how-to book on how to build a company. But in a manual, you're engaging in acts of subversion. Conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley is that new companies should make incremental advancements. In Zero to One, you say it's better to risk boldness than to be trivial. Well, uh, you, the most, um, there's this, uh, the opening sentence of Anna Karenina is that all happy uh, families are alike, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own special way. And my claim is that the very opposite of this is true in business. All happy companies are different because they found something unique that gives them a mission and that also gives them uh, a monopoly of sorts where they're able to charge uh, more for their products than, um, than other people can, where they don't have to compete. And all unhappy companies are alike because they've failed to escape the essential sameness that is competition. So when you iterate, when you do things that are just incrementally better, um, you end up in a super intense competitive dynamic. You don't want to be the fourth online pet food company. You don't want to be the tenth thin film solar panel company. Um, you don't want to open a restaurant, uh, period, in probably any city in the world. And, um, and these are these are incredibly competitive businesses, but they're not capitalist in the sense that they do not generate capital. They don't generate profits. They don't generate capital. Uh, capitalism um, works best when you do something that's, uh, that's very unique, very differentiated, and I think that's something uh, people need to think through really hard before starting. Competitive markets destroy profits. Explain. Well, certainly as, a, as an entrepreneur or founder of a company, uh, you, the, the goal is always to aim for a monopoly. It is to, uh, to do something no one else is doing. You'd much rather have started a company like Google than to have started uh, the pizza place in downtown Palo Alto or, or, even, or even like, a, say, an airline company, which is a big company, but has an, the airline industry in the U.S. has made no profits in 100 years cumulatively because the competition has destroyed all of them. You argue, in fact, that it's a how-to book. You say there are two kinds of businesses, monopolies and those that never really make any money. Really? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean pretty much everything I, I say in this book. It's, it is, uh, it's, it's, those are the two fundamental forms of business. The difference gets obscured tremendously because the people who have monopolies pretend not to have them. They don't want to get regulated by the government. They want to, and so they always pretend to be in a very competitive dynamic. And the people who have super competitive businesses um, always want to pretend there's something unique uh, so they can attract investors or something like that. So if you're if you were opening a restaurant in Palo Alto uh, um, and uh, you were trying to get me to invest in it, you might say, well, it's not like every other restaurant. It's really unique. It's really different. Or we have, we're the only British food in Palo Alto right. <laughs> or something like that. And, um, and, uh, and so people always tell fictional stories like this that end up obscuring the difference. The monopolists pretend not to have them and the people in uh, cutthroat competition pretend not to be, the apparent difference is much smaller than the real difference. So I think this is, this is, this is the fundamental difference in business is between uh, competition and monopoly, and, uh, and uh, you always want to be on one side. Of so apply that analysis to a company like Ford. Well, I would say the, the early Ford right. uh, was a vertically integrated monopoly with uh, enormous economies of scale. So that was the, the classic version of this. That, that worked the best. Um, I would say in, in recent decades, it's been much, a much trickier question, how do you actually differentiate yourself? The main differentiation is something like brand, which is, um, is a weak form of monopoly that a lot of these companies have. So there are people 
you know, it works very well for Mercedes and BMW, probably not as well for some of the American companies at this point. Okay. But that is, but that is uh, you know, there are people who like Fords more than Chevrolets, and they'll, they'll pay some, somewhat extra for that, even if it's completely undifferentiated. So brand is, a, is, a, is, a very, is, a, is the weakest form of monopoly. It's a slippery concept, but it is Coke and Pepsi. Right, right. You could right. say, on one level, they're very competitive, but there are, there are all these people who will only drink Coke or will only drink Pepsi. And so they're actually quite profitable franchises because they have this, uh, this brand component to it. You talk about brand in Zero to One as a tool to achieve monopoly. How do you think about brand? Well, um, I don't understand it. So I think it's, it's a real phenomenon, but I don't understand what, what makes There are people who will pay um, more than products uh, cost to manufacture because they like the brand. So marketing works, advertising works, and there are contexts where it can actually generate generate a real brand. I prefer not to invest in those sorts of companies. I prefer to invest in companies where there's a there's a major technological advantage, or you have the vertical integration, or you have other other types of monopolies that I consider to be somewhat more robust. But uh, but brand is, is is a very major one. Which leads to another question. You say hire the best engineers and focus on the best product. You say sales matter as much as the product. Well, it's always, it's always a combination of, uh, of technology and the uh, selling of technology. Um, uh, and the, certainly the conceit that engineers have, maybe scientists even more than engineers, is that you don't need to convince anybody of what you're doing. People, the world will beat a path to your doorstep to, 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 get, to get what you're producing. Um, and there are certainly uh, products where you have enormous lines of people that show up. Um, you know, Apple Computer was able to do this, but it, uh, the sales didn't. It didn't happen in a complete vacuum. And so there is always there's always a sales component. It always tends to be again something that's somewhat hidden. Um, the you know the worst salesmen are salesmen that are transparently salesmen. A used car dealer. That's the classic salesman. Right, right. Really good salesmen. It's always unclear. So I, I think Jobs was a phenomenal salesman but um, he didn't look like a used car dealer. I think you'd, you'd want to have a distribution plan, it's, it, and it's typically, uh, it's typically the component that people underestimate the most, especially if they're coming from an engineering background. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they come from a sales background, they probably underestimate engineering. If they come from an engineering background, they underestimate sales. People always overvalue what they do well. You know, if you're a lawyer, you think the only thing that exists in the world is law. If you're a scientist, right. there's nothing but science. Um, and, uh, and so there's always this bias to overvalue what you're good at and undervalue everybody else. Well, it's always it's always worth thinking. You know, how is this market going to develop? How is this product going to be rolled out? Will um, will you know what will happen in five, ten years with our business? And so I think these are all critical questions people should think through. Um, this doesn't mean that uh, you can't change your plan or you can change course, but um, but that shouldn't be the starting point. If the starting point is we have no idea what we're doing, we'll just figure it out as we go along. That's a very bad idea. Uh, even if it's even if it's like we're gonna, you know, there's sort of there's sort of the extreme version of this in Silicon Valley that's been tried a few times and has never worked. Is you, we're just gonna get a few talented people into a room and they're gonna keep brainstorming until they come up with a product. And I would say good ideas, good plans for a business, good business plan is actually quite a bit rarer than talented people. And so uh, it's uh, it's quite quite a valuable thing when it comes along. I, I would say that I was not thinking about this, and this is certainly my, if I had to give any advice to my younger self, it would be to think about these things a lot more. Uh, my bias was not to think about them. My bias was that education was a substitute for thinking about your future. What are you going to do with your future? I don't know. I'll get an undergraduate degree. What are you going to do once you have that? I don't know. I'll get a graduate degree. What are you going to do after that? I don't know. I'll work in a law firm or a consulting firm 
or um, a banking position because that will generate options down the line. And so when we think of our lives as just adding these line items on a resume, I think that's actually not the best way to go about it, even though um, that's, that, is, that is the bias that our, you know, our whole elite education system pushes people. I think, I think um, I, again, I think a bad plan is better than no plan. And so I think the 24-year-old Peter Thiel had, had no plan whatsoever. And, <laughs> right. and that was, that was a, a bad plan would have been better. Well, I would, I would argue other, that there are quite a few other things that, you, uh, that, uh, that people were expecting to improve. There's, um, there's an energy um, issue where uh, we haven't really moved beyond fossil fuels and they're getting more and more expensive. Uh, there, is, uh, there are food production issues where you had a fantastic green revolution that sort of run out of steam. Um, I think there's a lot that we could be doing in medicine, biotech. Uh, you know, we, we thought we were going to defeat cancer in the 1970s. We're 44 years later, not making that much progress. Uh, there are a lot of other diseases where I think we could be trying a lot harder. Uh, so I think, um, I think technology has been redefined as information technology. It, it has a much narrower meaning today than it did 40 or 50 years ago. And so we have this, uh, we have this very powerful but very narrow cone of progress around the world of bits, not so much in the world of atoms. And so we have this uh, dual, it's like this Cartesian dualism where you have uh, um, all the stuff happening in this virtual reality, but the, uh, the material world that we live in, um, not so much progress. And I think that's, uh, that's an important part that's missing. Well, that's, uh, that's what people um, who are argued against this uh, tech uh, deceleration thesis always, uh, always say. They always point immediately to the things that will happen a few years from now. And, um, and I certainly think that some of these things are plausible. There's no, no reason they couldn't happen. But, uh, but I always keep coming back to this idea that over the last uh, 40 years, it's been slower. And I think one of the reasons it's been hard to do things in the world of atoms is that it's very heavily regulated. It's hard to build a new nuclear power plant. It's hard to build a rocket. Supersonic airplanes are too loud. Um, you know, uh, new drugs cost a billion dollars to get through the FDA. And so uh, I, don't, I, don't think that, um, I don't think there's like a natural law that says that we can't do more, but I, I do think there are these, uh, these cultural and political uh, issues that have, that have slowed us down. Yeah, although the, uh, the, the place where I would part company very, very much with Summers is on what he would uh, do about this. Uh, Summers analyzes this as a macroeconomic thing, and he looks at it from a Keynesian perspective where you have to increase demand. So you have to increase money printing, you have to lower interest rates even more, you have to increase deficit spending. Uh, and this strikes me as completely crazy. I mean, consumers in the U.S. are borrowing too much as it is. You know, you have all the boom, baby boomers are approaching retirement in an actuarially bankrupt state. So it's, it's quite irresponsible to try to stimulate demand. Um, I have a much more classical view of the economy where I think um, the only side that really matters is supply, the, you know, the overall productivity of the economy. And so we have to ask, why is it so hard to make new things, to create new things? And I think that doesn't have so much to do with what Bernanke or Yellen are doing at the Fed, and it has much more to do with the micro-regulations that drive microeconomics, that drive the supply side. I think in our, in our time, uh, marginal tax rates aren't as important, right. and I think uh, Regu the regulations regulation are more important. important. Well, uh, we, have a, well uh, we have a bubble in education just like we had a bubble in housing in the last decade or in internet stocks in the 90s. Um, it's reflected in the fact that people are spending more and more. The uh, college's costs have gone up by 400% after inflation since 1980. You now have over a trillion dollars in student debt. And um, even though in many cases it still is um, somehow, it makes sense for people to do it because they get this credential that's so important for all these other things, um, it's, it is a somewhat parasitic system.
You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 like a, it's like a very, very expensive IQ test that's being administered where, uh, you know, an IQ test would cost $25. You know, Harvard education costs a quarter of a million dollars. And, um, and so, yes, once, once you have that credential, you get a better job, but it's an incredibly high tax that's being extracted. When people use the word education, uh, that's always an incredible abstraction already. Um, you know, and we should be talking about, like, what specifically are you learning? Is it like STEM? Is it, you know, science, technology, engineering, math? Is it real liberal arts where you're actually studying the humanities? Um, once you use this abstraction, it can, it can mean anything. Um, you can think of ec economically as education and investment. Is it a four-year party? Is it a consumption decision? Is it an insurance policy people are buying? Or is it, as I claim, in many cases, just a tournament where um, the value actually consists of the fact that these colleges exclude people primarily? Um, and if you, were, you know, if you were president of Harvard or any of these elite universities, the one thing that would get you fired right away would be to dramatically increase the enrollment. In a normal business, you have the entire world clamoring to get in. You'd say, okay, we're going we're gonna to increase enrollment by 20% or 100% over, you know, maybe a 10, 20-year plan. You don't have to do it right away. But because we're offering such a great education, obviously more people should have it. Um, and I think the only sort of business that wouldn't increase it, it's like, it's like a crazy nightclub. It's like Studio 54 or something like that where you have just a long line of people getting in. And the more exclusive you make it, the more valuable it is. So it's, it's, it masquerades as something... A positive sum. In reality, it's very zero sum. It's um, it's hard to say exactly how it ends because uh, one of the reasons that we've put so many resources into the education system as it is is that people can envision any kinds of alternatives. They can envision um, doing anything different. Um, what I what I think will happen is that. Um, we will start to see more alternatives. And I've never said nobody should go to college or anything like this. I think we should just have more choices. It should not be that you go to Yale or you go to jail. It should not be that, um, that uh, um, you have to get a college degree. And the, the, um, the analogy that I've, I've suggested is that in some ways I think um, the universities face a crisis somewhat similar to that of the Catholic Church in the early 16th century, 500 years ago, where you basically have um, have a unitary system, you know, there's one, one way, um, and it's sort of a secular atheistic version of the Catholic Church. It's like an atheist church where your salvation consists of getting a college diploma. If you don't get a diploma, you will go to hell, and, um, and there's no salvation outside, outside this, uh, this university system. Uh, it's costing more and more. The indulgences are get, getting more corrupt, and, um, and I think the, uh, the disturbing message that I have, which is similar to that of the 16th century reformers, is that um, there's not any formula, and that people have to f figure out a way to save themselves, and that's a and that's that's a disturbing message because we'd like to have a formula. You know, it would it would it would be why are you why are you going? It would be uh, I would say the uh, the advice would be that's always a slightly slippery answer there. It's but... it's a little slippery, but but it's always it's so hard to rerun these experiments. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, but it would be value substance more than status. So are you doing it for the prestige for the um, for the status? Or are you doing it because there really are a lot of uh, important things that you want to learn? So go long substance, go short status. I, th I think it will be a whole. I, I think it will be just very heterogeneous. It will be many different things. So it, it may be it may be MOOCs. It may be um, it may be amped up vocational training. It may be um, academies where you learn, say, computer programming in six months, and where you can actually get a really good job uh, without a four-year degree. Well, it's. Um, it's encouraging people to take on all these loans. It's subsidizing the loans, and then perversely, it's uh, making it impossible for people to ever get out of them. So uh, 
you, you cannot get rid of your student debt even if you personally go bankrupt. Um, uh, it, it's attached, it's, it's like, it's a form of uh, almost like indentured servitude. It's attached to you, your physical person, for the rest of your life. Oh, this is, this is hard to say. Let's just start by uh, acknowledging that something's gone wrong. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty hardcore libertarian, and even I would not have predicted that um, the Obama Obamacare would not be able to get its website to work. And a website is a demonstrably inferior, simpler product to building an Apollo rocket or to building uh, a bomb, uh, a, a nuclear bomb in the Manhattan Project. So, so there is um, th there is this inability to do anything involving complex coordination. There's almost, I think, an inability to. Uh, to describe a future that's really different from the present. So, uh, you know, a letter from an Einstein would get lost in the White House mailroom. Um, and, um, and somehow, uh, what, what seems to always happen is that, uh, that sort of um, redistributionist or utilitarian considerations dominate. So, um, you'd much rather uh, uh, give uh, grandma a little bit more money for Medicare than really invest in, uh, in the research to come up with some new, uh, new drugs. Or, um, you know, uh, we will, um, the money that would go to the moon will get spent on, um, on some other transfer program. And so it's, uh, the, the discretionary investing is steadily going down and non-discretionary spending steadily going up. And it's, it's somehow, uh, we, we can't imagine anything else to do with the money, I think. Um, I don't know if, um, if you can solve every problem with startups or small groups of people. But we live in a world where that's how problems actually will get solved. Will get solved. You will not do them through mass movements. You know, th think about when was the last time a politician gave a speech in which he or she portrayed a future that looked really different from the present. You can say like Martin Luther King, I have a dream, a painting in black and white how the U.S. would look really different from how it did in the 1960s. Um, Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. A very uh, that yeah, you may have had a little bit to do with Peter, um, uh, but that's that's actually the last speech I can remember where um, a a really different future was described. Um, and it's all uh, at this point it doesn't poll test well. You know I, I think people don't believe in the future. Um, you know the, every science fiction movie that gets made shows um, technology or a, a future that looks different is a bad future. It's The right. Matrix, it's Terminator, it's Avatar, it's Elysium. I saw the Gravity movie the other day. You'd, you'd, be, uh, uh, you'd be happy to be back on a muddy island. You'd never want to go into space. And so, um, and so in that sort of a world, uh, you will not get um, any pol broad political support for doing something very different. We have to always, thought experiments are always dangerous because you sort of get into very, very speculative territory. So yes, I, I, I think there are political things we could do that would be better or that would be worse. I don't think we should wait for this. And this is why, this is why I always, this is why I spend my time in Silicon Valley and not in DC. I find politics interesting. I think it's important. I also think it's almost endlessly frustrating. And so um, what's critical is to actually figure out what can you do today um, without waiting for political reform. And there's some things that you probably can't do, but I think there is still a lot that uh, people could do. And we shouldn't always blame the gridlock and blame the regulations, even though they make things work. Well, I, I, do, I, don't, I don't think that there's a, there's a unitary thing. So I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. I don't think everybody should be a computer programmer. I don't think everybody should be in politics. At the margins, though, I would, I would say that uh, one of the, one silver lining of the, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis 
is that young people are not going as much to Wall Street in New York and not going as much into politics in D.C. There was maybe a two or three year uh, bubble around D.C. after 2008. Um, that's happily ended. And I think, um, I think the fact that Silicon Valley is able to attract um, a, um, a, a plurality of the, uh, of the talented young people is a very healthy sign. Enrollments in Teach for America down over the last couple of years, good or bad? Um, it, it, it depends what people are doing instead. But, um, but I, think, uh, I think to the extent people are coming to Silicon Valley instead, on net, that's a good thing. Very long Silicon Valley, very short New York. It's unambiguous. It's, uh, we had a quarter century that was dominated by finance. You know, by 2007, um, half the profits in this country were being made by banks or financial institutions. And I'm not against banks or financial institutions, but it was just, it was too, too distorted. And so you're gonna have regulatory headwinds and some sort of renormalization process that will go on for a long time. And, uh, and, I, think, and I think, you know, engineering has not been a good career for many years. It's been good for computer science. Most other forms of engineering have been bad. Nuclear engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, chemical engineering. Um, and so I think, I think uh, there's a lot more room to, to build things, to, um, to do um, real engineering. Well, I'm always, look, I'm, uh, Peter, I'm skeptical of copying things. Uh, you know, you don't want to be copying, um, you know, you, you know you're not, you shouldn't try to be the next Facebook or the next Google, you know, you know the next uh, Mark Zuckerberg won't be building a social networking site, the next Bill Gates won't build an operating system. And, uh, and I think similarly, uh, to the extent you're trying to copy Silicon Valley, you're already putting yourself in some you know, weird derivative position. You, know, you don't want to be the, the Harvard of North Dakota. You know, the something of somewhere is often the nothing of nowhere. Well, uh, I think, I think, I think um, artificial intelligence is still, of, of the sort of strong variety that Walker talks about, uh, is still extremely far away if it, if it will ever happen. It's certainly, uh, certainly people would have, have predicted this would have happened a long time ago. So there have been a series of AI predictions that have turned out to be quite, uh, quite mistaken. So, it's, um, so it's, I think it's, it's possible that there's something in principle that makes it um, harder um, or almost impossible for, for reasons that we don't yet fully understand. Um, but I, th I, think, um, I think the reality is that humans and computers are just good at very different things. They are therefore mostly complementary. And uh, the fears that people have that they will be replaced by computers, I think, are, are largely unfounded. You know, technology uh, frees people up to do other things. It's scary if the computers were better than humans at absolutely everything. Um, I think that's still very far away. That's somewhere between science fiction and science fiction fantasy. Yeah, I think it's not as close, and I think his view of the future is mistaken. When you when one says that the singularity is near, this sort of portrays the future as this thing that, that just happens. It's just these exponential curves. All you need to do is sit back and eat some popcorn and watch the movie unfold. And um, I think it's actually, uh, rather than talking about uh, the future in the way in which Kurzweil does, I think it's often would be better to talk about human agency and what are what are we doing? What are, what sort of future are we choosing to build? But I think that uh, no, I think I think that. I think that uh, whenever we're too optimistic or too pessimistic about the future, uh, I'm always nervous about those, those sorts of mindsets because it means that it doesn't matter what you do. If you're super optimistic, the future will take care of itself. If you're super pessimistic, we're headed to the apocalypse, nothing you can do. And extreme optimism and extreme pessimism both lead to uh, sort of this inertia. And so I think, uh, I think it's always a healthier attitude to think of it as somewhat open-ended and it's really up to us to decide uh, what we want the future to be. I don't, I'm not a techno-utopian. I do not believe that technology is an absolute good. 
I think there are technological innovations that could be quite problematic. Uh, you know, you can certainly cite nuclear weapons as, as one such innovation. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that there can be a good future in which we do not have technological progress. We have seven billion people on this, on this planet, um, and you can't go back to a you know, Garden of Eden. You can't go back to some sort of pastoral Neolithic existence. Okay, so, but Peter, so, uh, so, go ahead. so we, you know, we have gone on this science technolo technological trajectory, and um, and having gone as far as we have, we have to try to go further. So there's a difference between saying lead your life this way because it's fulfilling, and at other moments you seem to be saying we're in trouble because we have seven billion people and stuck with democracy, and the only thing we need is this lifestyle. I think, I think, look, I, I think, I think, uh, I think we could be doing a lot better than we are. Uh, it's, uh, it's important for us to be uh, building these technologies. It's, it's not incompatible with people also reading Goethe or Shakespeare or uh, Greek philosophy. Uh, and so, um, so I think you can do, you can do both. But I, I, I don't think there can be a good future without more scientific and technological progress. So, and this has been this has been a motor that has driven Western civilization for the last few centuries. It would be a crazy thing for us to give this up. It is it's part of what what's made our civilization so extraordinary. And uh, and I think to give it up um, uh, would be an incredible would represent an incredible decline. Clayton Christensen has taken to ending his class by putting questions on the board. On the last day, he says, how can I be sure that I will be happy in my career? How do those questions about happiness figure into this? I always prefer meaning to, to happiness, uh, I, but I, I, think that, uh, I think we have meaningful lives when, um, are, I find them to be very meaningful when we do things that, otherwise, that are important that otherwise would not get done. So you don't want to be just a cog in a machine. You don't want to be just doing something that if you didn't do it, a thousand other people would take your place. And so it's um, it's always if but for but for you, but for this venture or this company that you're working on, this important thing would not get done. That's uh, that that tends to be extremely meaningful, and I think uh, you should always aim for that. Peter Thiel, author of Zero to One. Thank you.